0: The presenting sponsor for On Education is Classcraft. We're so excited to announce Classcraft's new story mode, which makes it easy for educators to harness the power of stories. But that's not all. Have you ever wanted to see yourself as a character in a story? Now teachers and students can create their custom game avatars and see them come to life on an augmented reality poster. To learn more about Classcraft's story mode and the new AR experience, simply visit classcraft.com.
1: You know, ability of an ARG. When you can live that experience as opposed to just being told it, that's far more powerful.
2: Welcome to On Education, part of the Education Podcast Network. I am Mike Washburn.
0: And I'm Glenn Irvin. Friends, we have an awesome pod for you today, We will discuss the impact of universities using artificial intelligence to select students for admission and the move away from physical textbooks by big book companies. We will debate what the right policy is for students submitting late work. And our guests this week are educators Paul Darvasi and John Fallon.
2: Whoa, new intro. Big new intro. (laughs) Well, it was just six letters, six words, but, you know, uh, big news. Yeah, huge news. We've joined the education podcast network we have lots of friends there we were uh glad to to make it happen it took a a little while but we we we're in it's uh it's exciting
0: yeah i mean that if you take a look at the list of the education podcast network it's ridiculous uh amazing educators and their podcasts including uh jennifer gonzalez and who else matt miller Miller. i mean there's just so many great podcasts on there so To be part of that group is so fantastic.
2: So, I mean, for us, uh, I mean, it's just another way for us to reach new people, ideally. Um, I I figure, you know, when people are looking for education podcasts, the Education Podcast Network might be one of the first places they would look. So if we're on that list, then that gives uh, us a little more... Uh, visibility obviously it's nice that um we have the potential to be shared by other people in the network and make connections there and and uh for you know people who may not have listened to um a lot of other education podcasts well I mean in our mind other than a, a few handful of others who aren't in the network this is the this is kind of the list of of some of the best education podcasts out there. So uh, if you are looking for a place to go for new podcasts, this is this is probably where it's at, right?
0: Yeah. And I mean, uh, unfortunately, iTunes is so populated, you know, on there. If you sort by education, it's just not really education related Yeah, There's a lot of garbage um, uh, uh, podcasts, And, and so some people are just basically uh, uh, saying that they're education related, but they're really not. And so it's a really tough place to go in and find and locate a a education podcast. And this is the place, man, these, this is a variety platter of all kinds of things. And they're all uh, really, really solid podcasts and some really amazing podcasts. So we're super happy to join them.
2: Not a lot is going to change. I mean, you heard you know the new the new intro bit there and then uh in the in the outro uh there'll be a little bit more of a substantive you know mentioning of the education podcast network uh but you know other than that uh, all of our information will be up on that site and we've added some stuff to our site about the education podcast network so um this is just really exciting just another way for us to grow and and gain more listeners and develop more of a community which is what we're trying to do absolutely so san diego comic-con uh i think is either just wrapped up or is about to wrap wrap up and basically this is one of those things that breaks the internet on a daily basis with you know whatever new announcement is coming out the other the other day it was the the next phase of the marvel Kind of the Marvel universes, um, you know, movies and when they're coming out. But the other day, probably about three or four days ago, it was the the dropping of the first real full length Picard trailer. And we're both kind of giant Trekkies, or big Trekkies, at least. I'm a giant Trekkie. I'd classify myself. Um, this trailer was friggin' amazing. I really like the the
0: entire concept. Of where they're taking this storyline, um, and I'm so happy it's not your typical uh, Star Trek series because I don't know how that would have went. So if they would have just followed the same model, which if you don't watch Star Trek, there's a lot of modeling. One. Uh, Series follows the next series, and there is something to the that kind of sticks to the original, but especially like the next generation type of things that uh, the way that they tell the stories, the concepts, the way that the adventures go, etc. So, this seems to take it on a completely new direction, but yet still has all of our favorite characters brought back for us, and then in a completely new way. Um, and my goodness, I think it's only like a three-minute trailer, and there's a lot of information there, and a lot of mystery to it too. So that's really, really exciting for all of us super nerds.
2: <laughs> the uh, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in the trailer, like you just said. So is is the so if you haven't watched it watch it we'll put it in the show notes you can watch it and then you can come back and listen pause it now go watch it and then and then come back and and let me ask this question and i don't know if you even thought we're going this direction with this thought but the young woman at the start that that they is like the focus of the first few seconds of the of the trailer is that is that tasha yar i'm
0: not sure i mean when i when I just saw you putting that on here, it could be. I mean, that would fit, probably fit this whole entire thing. But um, I do know, though, man, there's so many great characters coming back. I mean, just having Data back on this thing, and then oh, having, boy. and then having some characters uh, that are from different shows. So there was Seven of Nine. Uh, who is a completely different series, and she totally she shows up uh, as far as uh, on this uh, trailer. And so, yep. I mean, again, if you are a Star Trek person, you are just you can't wait till twenty twenty, and then of course it they was tell a us,
2: smorgasbord. <laughs> they tell us
0: not till twenty twenty, and everybody's just like, "Oh, God. <laughs> we're all sad, but it'll be amazing."
2: So they didn't they didn't mention or it wasn't shown in the trailer at all. But I I know that um it's already it's been confirmed now that Riker is going to be um appearing in episodes as Riker, but that Jonathan Frakes is directing some of the episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, he's directed a ton of Star Trek, so not just playing Riker, but uh, especially post Next Generation, he probably directed. You know 10 or 15 deep space nine episodes he directed a whole bunch of voyager directed a whole bunch of uh, other episodes um so and i think he's directed one episode of discovery so like he's directing a lot of star trek obviously he's you know a a well-versed person in this universe uh and um um deanna troy is also going to be on the show um, uh, you know, as, as, as counselor Deanna Troy. So those are, so it's like a, it is literally regular. like getting the band, getting the band back together, um, of next generation, which, uh, is exciting. Now I loved discovery. I, I know that there are people that didn't, I think discovery is awesome. I think they're telling amazing stories and it, it also does not, follow the mold of the typical star trek pattern that for sure was in you know next generation and voyager were definitely very had a very patterned style and Mm -hmm. and you know discovery does not fit a pattern like that at all either um so and the cinematics and the 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 camera effects and like the all of like the cinematography of the trailer everything was just awesome yeah so as a Obviously, when it comes out,
0: we're going to talk about this. So get ready for the nerds to come back <laughs> old, in 2020 whenever they pull out these episodes. because We're going to be watching these.
2: <laughs> play by, we'll have a play by play of Star Trek. We'll have a on education presents Star yes. Trek card.
0: <laughs> we just we just break down the episodes.
2: <laughs> Super cool. Yeah, so we yes, obviously very very excited, uh, and it'll be it'll be sweet um a couple articles that we uh, came across over the last week or so um this one in fast company that'll be in the show notes about schools using ai to decide who gets in what what do you think about what do you think about using a computer to um to run admissions horrible horrible idea okay, um, okay. i mean i could
0: just just uh, first of all the the admissions process we already know is super flawed And part of the reason why it's super flawed is because of the ability for people to game the system. And the way that you game a system is uh, one of the easiest ways is by manipulating test scores, uh, either having someone else take the test for you, or you do something as far as being able to do something, you know, within the test scores themselves. And we've basically decided, I mean, we've, we thought about it and some some major universities uh, have gone in this direction, uh, where the test scores aren't the end all. Actually, they are just a one of the many measures. And those other measures are basically like personal interviews, uh, really kind of getting to know the student, whether or not they're qualified to be able to fit into this. And so I just yeah. don't see artificial intelligence uh, with just basically a data analysis of a person, of a, of a student, being able to tell whether a student will Number one, be successful in the college process, but also be a contributor to their university setting. That's really what you would want, someone that can come in and step into roles and really lift up the university. Um, And I seriously doubt you can find that on any kind of data analysis that an artificial intelligence system would do. Seems like – you know what this seems like? Is a way to save money. So you have, a, recruit, oh, for sure. uh, uh, you have a team of people basically who are part of your admissions team. And my goodness, talk about being able to cut a bunch of jobs in that area of a bunch of yeah. people who actually sort through applications and and read through them and discuss and, and do all the processes that they do at universities and then having a computer just basically do that uh, based solely on information that can be inputted. So I mean, we're talking about test scores. I I don't know what else you could talk about. I mean, you know, GPA, et cetera, um, you know, where, where you went to university or sorry, high school or whatever, but most of the data there, I just, I, I hate this idea. Uh, I like some other artificial intelligence ideas. This idea is like, yeah. What
2: do you think? So, I mean, the, the, I guess the one thing that would be an advantage is that it does potentially, Assuming that there's not bias built into the algorithm, it reduces the bias from the people making the decisions. That's, that's one of the big features of this that they're, they're claiming is that, you know, we've seen this scandal where people were bought off basically to True. let people into their schools. Well, I mean, you can't buy off a, a computer program. Now, that being said, you, you, know, you have to, be insu- <laughs> you have to yeah. ensure that there's not bias cooked into the system itself. Um, that would be, that's my biggest concern. My biggest concern is that you could have schools that say, we only want, um, we only want, you know, middle to, um, middle to middle class to wealthy white families from, you know, the suburbs of Chicago. That is like our target market. And so they, you give extra kind of points or whatever, in the algorithm for, you know, white people from the suburbs of Chicago that make that have household incomes over one hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand dollars, you know, and you could cook that right into your system so that you're you're already giving um, people who would um, have potential and um, know they could do well in university. Um, already putting them at a disadvantage because the algorithm basically automatically dismisses you because you don't meet that sort of criteria. Yeah. That's the super big danger uh, of of uh, a system that doesn't have a personal, personal touch to it yeah. at all. And I was right? thinking, it
0: says, I mean, within the article, you should go ahead and read it. Uh, the creator of this, of the startup, basically says that you... We can't trust humans, <laughs> the human bias. We're going to trust this artificial intelligence and and that type of thing. So it's a, I have a hard time with that. I mean, I understand there is human bias in a lot of different things and a lot of aspects, but would you trust the humans in admissions or where are you going to trust this program that's created? And that's, for me, it's super hard, especially because there are so many aspects of admissions that shouldn't not be based upon a pure test score. And I just named some of them, especially those types of things that involve you personally having to step out, uh, whether it be a formal interview, an online type of interview where they get to actually talk to you, just like an interview for a job. You can put whatever you want on an application and it might get you to the next step to be able to get to the interview. Once you hear someone talk at an interview, that's where the decision is made. doesn't even matter if on the on paper, this person looks amazing Talking to them and saying, is this going to be part of our organization? In this case, a university, is this a person that's going to contribute, we can, we get something, a feeling off of you. That's an important part of, of I think, of, of, of life interviewing through processes, whether they be about jobs or university settings, because, you know, you can get a better feel for somebody rather than just kind of some statistical stuff on paper.
2: One of the one of the interesting parts in this article talks about so we've talked about something like self segregation before how communities move into into, you know, um, communities that are similar to them, uh, whether this be, you know, race or whatever um, wealth. For example, fenced off little fenced off school districts with like one public school and one high school, um, you know, for wealthy people basically to to create their own little school board. This this stuff happens all the time. So the problem it's it's a problem, and they've also addressed it as a feature of the system where you know if you, so if you specify a zip code, for example, and that's best that that zip code happens to be in in a um in a, a neighborhood it it's supposed to flag it as hey, you know you're specifically targeting a neighborhood that is self-segregated in one way shape or form that could inject bias into your into your applications hmm. um, or uh, the other the other one is uh, flagging for things like personal relationships um, and stuff like that uh, it seems like they've thought of a lot of these things uh, I, I think that it's worth, you know, giving it a shot and seeing, you know, how it actually works in a couple of years. Uh, I'd be interested in knowing, you know, where we're at three or four years from now with this. Mm-hmm. Um, because Because, you know, it's a little early to pass, you know, brutal judgment on something like this. But... There is something to be said for the personal touch, the being able to talk to a person face-to-face and learning about who they are and what they would bring to your school and the, the future potential that they have as a student. Mm-hmm. That's There's nothing better than that, and no machine can assess that. Um, this other article that came up, uh, not an article, sorry, it was a Twitter post um, from Jennifer Gonzalez, and who is amazing, just who is amazing, <laughs> and a actually is a podcast on the Education Podcast yes, Network. So the there, cult you of there you go, pedagogy. We there you go. We're already plugging exactly. Um, and it's it's talking about teachers struggling with handing in late work, whether you deduct points, how to keep track. Uh, and kind of letting us know, letting her know what works. This, this is going to make a great question on chat on education. We'll, we'll, be, we'll be putting that out there because we. I'd love to know too. And this is, to be honest, this is something I struggled with um, and probably something as I'm reflecting on my past. Um, and actually, I mentioned this on, I think it was on the TLAP chat or it might've been another chat last week. And I talked about how I had, I had students who failed my class. Um, uh, and, uh, I allowed that to happen and I almost, um, I, and I didn't have a problem with it at all. And I'm rethinking whether that was a, a good thing or not, you know, as I'm sitting here reflecting on my, my experiences as a classroom teacher. um, I mean did you did you deduct for late work as, oh, as a Spanish as absolutely. a Spanish teacher
0: and and it is this this along with um, just grading in general um I think are the things that really burn at your soul as a teacher because those are these oh. it's different I mean it this along maybe classroom management is 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 another aspect of this because there's no easy solution to this uh there is no one right answer. So there's a lot of things that uh, people are responding with on uh, Jennifer Gonzalez's post here that are actually really, really good ideas. And I'd like to hear more of other people that do these kinds of things. For example, uh, where a student would, if they submitted something late, they could go ahead and say, they could turn in a form and maybe even have their parents sign the form. I've seen I saw a couple of people talk about this and basically say, "Hey, I missed this due date," especially when we're talking about the things that would really bother me is those summative things, a big project like in your class. I mean, what are you going to do with the student that doesn't actually do the thing that you've been working on the whole entire time and turn it in by the date that it's actually due? Uh, in this case, they have this form where basically you're requesting an extension, and I plan to turn this in, and here's why it's late. And to kind of make a more human uh, aspect of this or a more human part of the of this conversation. And this is the type of stuff that actually is allowed at university settings. So I'm all for those kind of solutions where you're like, okay – Something happened. Let's come up with a solution so that we can uh, move forward. And and again, so you don't fail the class, just like you just finished describing, because that's horrible. I mean, what a horrible feeling. You're like, oh, this kid just didn't pass. But really, I don't even know yep. if they actually learned anything because they just didn't submit the, the thing, whatever that they was, you know? Yeah.
2: I can honestly say the kids who the kids who failed my, my class uh, were given opportunity upon opportunity upon opportunity upon opportunity to submit their work to 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 come after class to i that i mean i spoke to their parents i would have spoken to their parents multiple 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 times i would have sat with them and like i would have done everything i thought i needed to do in order to have a student be successful yeah like I, i wouldn't fail like Kid out of pride or out of look the power that I wield. No. Um no. you know, I'm not that type of person. There are those types of people. I'm not one of those types of people. And I think
0: those people are far and few between. I, I oh, think, very, I think very both few. of us really I, yeah, struggle with that imagine. concept
2: of like we're exactly like you where you're like,
0: uh we need something. You need that artifact you're learning. You need to to get it in. Uh, I did have one time, Mike, that I wanted to share where a year I, I took on the thing where I was like, okay. I'm not going to have any due dates. Okay. So you could turn in all of your stuff at the end of the semester and it would still count. Um, For the most part, all of my students still followed the exact same thing. I would say 80%, maybe higher, 90% of my students just did what they were supposed to do on a timely basis. Hmm. Uh, But there was some students who at the end did turn in a whole bunch of stuff and it really tore at me. I was like, ah, this was a bad decision. Uh, And and I felt bad for the students who had actually done all the work up to that point. I felt bad for myself and my family because now I had to grade all of this stuff and give it a fair chance as far as uh, did they actually pick up these things? What were those things? And a lot of times that's just not realistic. Uh, Just because we need to know, we need timely data to be able to make, adjustments to our teaching, et cetera. We talk about that all the time, formative assessment, and then change our teaching to fit and adjust where we need to be moving with our students, uh, differentiate for them. But if we don't find out all of that until the very end, you really can't do any of that adjustment. You can't do any of that stuff. So. That actually blew up in my face. And I was, you know, I I tried a lot of things while I was teaching. I could tell you that that one for myself, it just didn't work out. I know for some people, they actually do have systems like that. And that kind of feels like this, where if we don't have a due date as humans, are we less likely to go ahead and just turn something in? Do we need that due date for some of us to be able to compel us to be like, oh, I need to get, I need to prioritize this. We prioritize stuff all the time in life. Yeah, stuff that's on our calendar, stuff that's here, and we need to put them into the right things. If it's not on your calendar, if it's not on your to do list, do you ever just do it? You know, so that's the biggest question here, and that's uh, I, I would I'm I'm gonna love to hear what people have to say on chat on education about this specific thing because it's more it's super complex and it really burns at our souls as teachers.
2: Yeah, there's definitely not one. I I don't feel like there's a good answer. Not sorry, I feel like there are multiple good answers. I guess is what I'm actually trying yeah. to say is that there's not one be all and end all answer to this, and it depends on uh, so many things. Uh there was someone who posted a like a um, a couple people actually in this chat posted things like a late work explanation form. Um, that I've actually pulled out of the chat, and I'll link it in the yes. show notes so that you can you really can good download atheists. it if you want want to use it i i i love the accountability piece of of having students hand things in on time and be responsible for their work and doing it when it needed to be done i mean um you and you can frame it in a couple of different ways i mean even as a teacher your time has value and if you you know are are assessing you know, something that was due three months ago and you have to go back out and get all the, the things that you need to, to do this or whatever. I mean, there's a pattern and a rhythm to the school year that's disrupted by late work. And, um, you know, so there's lots and lots of things to talk about when it's yes. related to this. Um, and And it's not as easy as, you know, who cares when kids hand things in? It's all about mastery. I mean, that sounds great. I love it. You know, that's a nice thing to put on the inside of a, a book about, you know, about, you know, <laughs> hashtag, hashtag it's for the kids or whatever. I, I love all kids. Right. Yep. Right. Right. Kids are awesome. But the practicality love, of love that, the man, kids.
0: it is really can get really ugly. And I'm telling you it's, right now, too, that some students and their parents and and who could blame them will really resent you. Uh, yeah. those kids that actually did do what they were supposed to do in timely manner and the, did the stuff, you know, whatever it might be, there can be some backlash on that too. So that's the reason why this discussion needs to be had because it's one of those topics that just burns at your soul. It doesn't matter almost like which decision you decide to make. Almost all of them have the positives and the negatives, you know, that come along with them.
2: It's complicated. Yes. Just like, listen, we wouldn't be having the conversations no. if they were easy. No. So. It's complicated, just like everything else, friends. Mm. Um, and we have another complicated conversation coming up after the break. When we come back, uh, textbook companies have been facing challenges for a, a lot of years and and we don't really do them any favors on this show <laughs> no, either. Um, and hopefully the beginning of some big changes has uh, just started, so we'll talk about that when we come back next. Stay with us.
0: On Education is brought to you by Pick My Kid. Pick My Kid is an automated dismissal solution that cuts car line time in half. It engages parents with the parent app by being able to change dismissal routines right from their phone. Friends, that means no more front office calls. Pick My Kid is affordable for schools and removes dismissal stress for parents, teachers, and staff. For more information, visit PickMyKid.com. That's
2: P-I-K-MyKid.com. All right, welcome back to the show, everybody. Uh, Pearson is a pretty big name in textbooks, and they just announced uh, a couple days ago that they're going to adopt what they call a digital-first approach to updating higher ed course materials. And I'm quoting now, meaning that any revisions or changes to textbook content will happen first in their digital versions. Uh, I mean, textbooks have been a racket for a while, yes, right? Yes, they have been. <laughs> and And I, I mean, I'm not so far out of my time in university to remember spending my. thousands of dollars on textbooks. Crazy. Um, and then you know, you know a couple years later, the same textbook revision 2.0 yes. or whatever is is a hundred dollars more and and they changed you know where the periods are in some of the sentences mm-hmm. uh, updated a couple of the pictures. This is a more modern version of a tent instead of this picture of a tent kind of thing
0: yes totally and i mean even even when you get the digital versions though mike uh i don't know if you were i'm sure you were sometimes buying the digital versions of these textbooks you you got to borrow them (laughs) you ever do that you rented them for a year um or a semester or whatever might be it still cost you like 70 or 80 dollars
2: or you get the CD. Do you remember when they had oh, yeah. CDs had in the CD back
0: of the Oh yeah, we had CD-ROMs, baby. Yes, we forgot about CD-ROMs.
2: <laughs> oh Man. boy, Ugh. and and then they and then they frame it as being modern, right? Oh, that's
0: that's exactly what a lot of this is, and too often we see in these textbooks. We we did purchase quite a few at my previous school digital mm-hmm. versions of textbooks, and it's specifically the ones that have to do with math are basically. PDF copies of your physical textbook, which is Gross. just just so stupid and so expensive. I mean, they may say, oh yeah, well, you get the digital version, blah, 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 it's at cheaper price. But there is no it doesn't have some, you know, our, our uh, abilities to do things nowadays, as we've talked about on the show uh, with all kinds of different things, whether it be game-based learning, uh, all kinds of uh, project-based learning, whatever it might be uh, in digital versions of things, 3d animations to be able to kind of immerse us into learning are available for us to be able to do that. And in, in textbook companies to invest in and to be able to include them as part of their books Yet so often, it's the same textbook of a PDF, except it's a PDF copy of a stagnant PDF copy of the book so that you could see it. Many of the students that, uh, at least in my previous district, hated the digital version of things. They wanted the physical textbook. They were like, oh, this is stupid. And we had one-to-one devices. Uh, many educators hate the digital versions of you know, the aspects of the books themselves, uh, whether it be because they're uh, they feel, you know, a sense of the the physical textbook is something to it or whatever it might be. It just doesn't feel like you're getting that much for it. So I hope that they're moving past that and really that 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 these digital textbooks become immersive environments for learning rather than just same old, same old, uh, you know, uh, that's been produced for, you know, the last however many years the racket of textbook companies has been going, which has been a lot of years.
2: the irony of this is that is that the use of print textbooks well there's two ironies first off and one of them we've already mentioned that this isn't so much about it being better for learners Mm. as it is being better for Pearson to save money yes Um, Pearson is shedding jobs and 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 revenue like it's Crazy, um, so people are catching up to the idea that you know um, they're they're adding limited value to what is happening in in the class, um, but the the second irony is actually worse, and that's that. Uh, the the driver for the continued desire for print books is faculty. It's it's not it's not the students, and it's not the the need to for a better learning situation or or uh, knowledge acquisition. Uh, it's it's because um, there are still you know thousands and thousands of professors out there that that live in the stone ages and uh, want you know to hand out textbooks i i don't know what the ultimate driver of something like this whether it's because it's their buddies that write the textbooks and they get cuts i mean there is some of that some of that there is some motivation to selling books in this industry for sure um we know people who have books being offered in school courses so i mean it's part of it but um I'll tell you, it, it, it's just like everything else we've just said today. We've said it a million times today. It's complicated, friends. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the idea that faculty are the driver for print books is just kind of blows my mind a little bit. The uh,
0: the great stories that I like to tell as far as in K-12 education are districts that now it's been six to eight years now that have moved away from textbook companies. And move towards open education resources, some of which they've actually created. There's a school in Byron, Minnesota, in southeastern Minnesota, who basically is at the forefront of flipped education for math classrooms. And what they did is said, we can't actually afford these new textbooks, nor do we actually want to invest our monies into them. Can't we just develop our own curriculum with our the state standards there and then develop key videos and and resources for our students that actually teach towards these specific things and they made it happen and they've continued to make it happen and guess what each year they upgrade their version so they're they're not using the same old thing they used eight years ago they continue to upgrade it and 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 key in on the things that work and don't work and have done an amazing job now that's in specifically in mathematics I wonder if there's other examples out there that have uh you know things as far as in the sciences. I know that um, you know, the open education resources in sciences are actually growing a lot too. Sure. Um and CK twelve is a, a fantastic company that gives you all kinds of open resources there. Um I just wonder if there's some some really good stories out there of people who said, you know what, we can go with the alternative to the big textbook company and it's actually being successful. Our students are still doing well on whatever types of you know assessments that are being given. And we don't need these specific textbooks from these big book companies and these huge investments in these things, whether it be digital or physical, we can create our own. So that – that conversation that really fascinates me. And I want to make sure we we reach out to people who are doing it so that more people can connect to them. Like, how do you do this? You know, how do you how do you basically circumvent Pearson <laughs> and then get, yeah. get, get to get to a place where you can just create the materials or you can use them from open resources and then still have a high quality of resource. That's the biggest concern, I think, for teachers. They would want to make sure we have high quality uh, resources.
2: So I mean, I, I this is a fight for survival for Pearson. This is them fighting back, and nothing nothing should surprise you about this transition. Uh, but you know 1.3 billion dollars in revenue in 2018 Whoa. let's let's hope that let's hope that the pressure that is that comes from um this need to um shift um brings about some need or some innovation in in ways and you know hey guys use the money to do actual cool stuff not not just yes. take your take your textbooks, photocopy them, and put them in PDFs, <laughs> and then say, "Hey, look at us going digital." Yes. Um, I, you know, it's it's. I, I'm not going to call it tough love because it's not love necessarily, but I, I'm going to say, you know, this. Hopefully, you know, you you learn that you know you can't just, you know, shove stuff out into the world and and say, "Look at us," and and here it is. Um, you know, digital or not, Mm -hmm. we we talk a million times about you know games based learning done by done by people who aren't delivering it properly or you know can't can't do it right or or don't get a PD in it or it's still not a good learning experience. Well, listen, newsflash, but a a digital textbook is still a friggin' textbook, guys. Um, so you know, take that 1.3 billion and. Put it into some. Hey, I'll help. Uh, I mean, we I'm don't. sure Glenn will help too, we right? <laughs> but uh, and we have and we have friends. Our yes. our squad is large and and talented. So so you know, get in touch if you need somewhere to spend some of that 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 no. sweet sweet textbook money. Um, because cause listen, Uh-oh. putting photocopying your sheets and then putting them in PDFs uh, and then saying we're going to update them now all the time. Well. Mm. I mean, that's just, frankly, it's just not good enough. Nope. Um, when we come back, we're going to be joined by our good friends, uh, Paul Darvazi and John Fallon, so stay with us.
0: On Education is brought to you by Taylor Ed. As teachers, meeting the needs of each and every student in today's classroom is time consuming, complicated, and overwhelming. Taylor Ed makes differentiation in math effortless through curated resources, smart student grouping, and student insights beyond proficiency. Sign up today using the promo code ONEDUCATION and receive three months on us. Visit taylor-ed.com for more information.
2: All right, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. One of our next guests gets name-dropped in about half the episodes, Uh, Paul Darvazi is an author, speaker, and teacher from Toronto, Ontario, uh, practically my neighbor. Uh, And as well, he is the co-author of an amazing alternate reality game for students based on digital citizenship and privacy with our other guest, John Fallon. John is a teacher, curriculum developer, and game designer from Connecticut. Welcome to the
1: show, fellas. Thank you. Thank Thank you. I'm glad to finally be on. Big fan.
2: So why don't we do quick introductions just in case um, nobody has uh, uh, met you guys or or, or been introduced to you before. So go ahead. Why don't we start with Paul and then we'll do John.
3: Sure. Uh, Thanks, Mike. I'm a high school English and media studies teacher from Toronto, Ontario, and I am doing uh, lots of work with games. I I incorporate them, uh, incorporate commercial video games into classrooms. Uh, I design alternate reality games, and I write and speak about games and learning and culture.
1: My name is uh, John Fallon. I'm an English teacher uh, out of Fairfield, Connecticut. I uh, also uh, design alternate reality games, uh, one of them with Paul. And I, I, as an English teacher, also use a lot of commercial video games, narrative video games in class to study as text. And, yep, I I tend to uh, speak a few times a year about uh, games and learning um, of different types. So guys, a lot of our audience
0: probably has no idea what alternate reality game even means. Um, and so for our audience that may have not ever heard of this, can you give us like the 101 of alternate reality games and maybe even how they're used in education?
3: Yeah, so uh, an alternate reality game is, is an immersive game that sort of blends the digital with the real world and uh, players who are involved in these games uh, are are accessing the narrative through all types of different places. It could be posters, it could be false websites, getting phone calls in the middle of the night. So it's essentially almost like playing a video game in the real world. And in some cases, if, if they're well done, uh, the boundaries between the real world and the game should be fairly blurry.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a type of game that, that uses real-world platforms, so if you can communicate with it in real life, instant messages, uh, websites, social media, you know, envelopes taped under desks in the classroom, uh, you can use it as part of the game. And and Paul's right, a big part of it, uh, of the fun of playing these games is it. Uh, it's very easy to... Um, kind of pretend that it's actually happening in the real world and that blurriness of, of the real and the fiction of the game is, is definitely a big draw of it.
2: Um, John, how did you guys meet? So, so I, I think that this is a, a neat story and this kind of leads us into the next question I'll ask, but how did you and Paul get together to do what we're going to talk about here? This game that you guys made?
1: Uh, yeah, cause it's, it's definitely uh directly related to alternate reality games. So, Geez, coming up on seven years or so, mm-hmm. um, something like that. We uh, both had attended the Games in Education uh, conference, which is actually uh, coming up on uh, in uh, August 19th and 20th. And uh, I had just signed up because I had done this alternate reality game with uh, my students based around the Odyssey. Um, and it was this whole kind of game where I wanted them to get the feeling of solving puzzles and, and using your wits. So I wanted to simulate that for them. So, um, I had built this uh, thing where they were solving these puzzles and riddles, uh, parallel to reading and studying the Odyssey in class. And it was great. I had just kind of done it, uh, in, in a fit having, uh, seen some alternate reality game puzzles, in a different uh, context within uh, an MMO called The Secret World, so that was kind of my initial inspiration, right. where I, I realized you could kind of uh, import these puzzles experiences in many different contexts, including the classroom. So I just kind of done it on a whim, and you know, I they, thought I they was built
2: the- they sorry they built out a huge ARG in advance of the game coming out too, mm-hmm. like a massive ARG.
1: Yeah, and I believe they still have uh, a commercial one running called The Secret Watchmen. And there's actually another spinoff that they did that's cybersecurity-focused called Night Team 4, which um, I played a little bit, and I've I've got to go back and and check it out. But anyway, I thought it was the only kind of of crazy one doing these types of things. And sure enough, I go there, and I'm standing in line by the shuttle, and I'm reading the, uh, the program. And I see that there's this other guy named Paul Aravasi who did alternate reality games in his English class. I'm like, "Oh, wow, that looks really interesting." And Paul's sitting right next to me uh, in line for the shuttle, (laughs) and we uh, instantly we instantly clicked. You know, we liked the same literature, we were nerdy about um, a lot of the same things, and of course, we both um, were experimenting with this wacky way of doing games in class. And you know, by the end of the conference, we were already dedicated to trying to figure out a way to to do things together
2: very very cool um so you guys made a game so um uh, you you got together and designed a game that kind of surrounds digital citizenship security personal safety kind of online online privacy so paul maybe break down the game that you guys made you guys made this game called blind protocol um the steps and the process and kind of what actually happens like the game
3: itself Sure, so uh, the, John and I, you know, after we realized we had this shared passion and, 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 and shared kind of intellectual space, um, decided, well, how can we kind of draw forces and create an alternate reality game that's going to involve both of our schools? And uh, one thing that John and I share in common is that we really uh, were interested in the idea of uh, privacy and surveillance and data mining. Uh, and we both felt that not enough was being done to prepare kids for for you know the the, the the degree of surveillance, corporate, state-sponsored surveillance that's going on in our midst, and 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 it's a very important literacy and the kind of digital literacy repertoire that we felt uh, needed to be attended to. So we combined this idea of wanting to create an alternate reality game between our schools and instructing on privacy and surveillance um, and and started working on an idea for a game. And it started with a few little seeds uh, and we also wanted to incorporate an artificial intelligence element. We've spent the better part of two years uh, creating documents, having Skype conversations, and working through the details of the game that we eventually launched uh, two years later. It was, uh, it was my media studies class and John's English class uh, who would essentially be pitted against each other. Uh, and the game is fairly involved. It's fairly complex. It goes on for 30 days. Um, and And I think the best way to kind of immerse you into into the world of this game is is what we call our rabbit hole it 's the the kind of opening uh, salvo uh, that lets the kids know that they are now in a completely different space and Uh, The kids are not prepared. They're not told they're going to be playing a game. And in fact, John and I never admit that there's a game going on. Even while we're in the midst of a game, we we pretend that we are as much a victim of what's going on as they are and that we're kind of trying to navigate this really complex situation that evolves over 30 days. So on the first day, uh, I tell my students that we're going to learn about privacy and surveillance for my media studies class. John does the same thing in parallel with his English class. They walk into the classroom. Uh, we talk a little bit about privacy and surveillance, and I throw in a TED Talk video. And about halfway through the TED Talk video, I get a phone call, as John also gets a phone call. This is all happening at the same time. (laughs) And I look very concerned. I say a few things, and and then I storm out of the classroom with the video paused, and the students mystified as to what is going on. Um, While they're waiting, about two minutes after the video's been paused, the video unpauses itself, uh, there's this kind of ruptured screen, this kind of electrified screen, and then there's an alert to check their emails. Um, all of a sudden the laptops all start flying open because we, we both have one-to-one laptop schools and they have a, a an email that's been sent from inside of the school server, but <laughs> from awesome. uh, an entity named Horace. And they don't know if this is a person, an institution, but they have no idea. And Horace Uh, The Horace email uh, links them to a video, a very disturbing video uh, which basically says that they have been watched, that Horace knows everything about them, and that they've now been indoctrinated into a series of events that they have to follow or they have to pursue. And the accompanying email has a binary puzzle where they have to decode binary uh, that leads them to the four cardinal points of the school where they have to find these digital canopic jars, where they put clues together, eventually finding a sarcophagus that's buried in the center of the school. And when they open the <laughs> so sarcophagus, crazy. there's a there's a, there's a there's a U, USB stick inside that has a document catch that basically unloads uh, all of the information they need for the next step in the game. John, do you want to take over from there for a bit?
1: Yeah, sure. And so as you might have picked up, you know, the game has – this kind of pseudo Egyptian uh, theme uh, to kind of, kind of give it like a cohesive aesthetic. Um, and it's very like cyberpunky, where, you know, there's, you know, data forts and jars, but they're really, you know, USB sticks, hidden files, that type of thing. Um, so it's just kind of part of the aesthetic of the game to, to, to loop the kids in and, um, yeah, so th- this kind of first experience is is somewhat typical for the ARG experience because if you're, you know, anyone in the audience is trying to imagine, like, how do you play the game? Well, one of the main challenges and interfaces of, of an alternate reality game is, like, kind of like collaborative puzzle solving, where you have this thing that seems completely uh, opaque and, and kind of um, uh, unsolvable, and you don't really know what's going on, but gradually, the group begins to work their way through it. So as Paul mentioned, you know, there's, there's this binary code. They solve that. There's a riddle. It leads them to one place, and then they realize that, oh, we have actually four different uh, variations of the same puzzle, so we're working in different teams to eventually kind of, uh, you know, um, descend on the on the final puzzle once they put it all together and you know uh uh, and one of the versions i ran is actually under a lunch table in the center of the cafeteria uh, so I remember, you know, watching from afar as they're all eating lunch and the student is kind of trying to surreptitiously walk over to a lunch table and is feeling, <laughs> is feeling under and, he, you know, he grabs a, a manila envelope that's been duct taped there and then kind of, you know, scurries to the corner to to unlock it, which, you know, kind of had the initial phase of the game. So once they've done that and they've been onboarded, so to speak, uh, into the uh, what, we, what we call the program capital T capital P uh, their next step is, is a is a research phase. So Horace um, you know the students don't really know this and it's only kind of uh, implied uh, through the, the last version of the game, but he uh, or it is, is an AI that has gone rogue and w- of course what what the AI wants is, is information. So they get this uh, document that has all these different topics within cybersecurity, you know, everything from, you know, Edward Snowden to, um, you know, data mining, you know, privacy on social media, you know, uh, data breaches, all these different topics that, you know, increasingly are, are in the news every day. Um, and, you know, anywhere from p- political ramifications to personal ones, you know, all these different contexts. And they have to start accumulating information about them. And so once they've uh, accumulated All these different um, kind of data points, you know, articles, YouTube videos, uh, under these different tags, they can then move on uh, to the next phase. Um, So it's kind of like this like mad rush uh, for information. Um, And then once they have that, uh, then they can begin uh, turning that information uh, into actual artifacts of information. Um, that that uh, Paul, you can tell more about the actual artifact phase.
3: Sure, and and John and I very deliberately designed this to work like a video game, in the sense that they they have to both we, we both we designed it to try to create a collective experience and an individual experience. You have to do individual yeah. work, but you have to pool your work collectively to achieve a certain threshold. And then that unlocks the next phase. So they're kind of rushing through to get these phases accomplished. And once they have the what you know, this kind of this where they've gathered this massive amount of data related to privacy and surveillance, that becomes their kind of pool of resources that they draw from in order to start producing artifacts. Mm. And what starts getting revealed uh, between the the second and the third phase is that there's a there's this very dramatic moment where this entire time my students have thought that they were the only ones that have been going through this. They have no idea that there's another school, another class, or anything like that. And then all of a sudden there's a reveal where it becomes very apparent that somebody somewhere else in the world or a group of people somewhere else in the world have been put through exactly the same steps that they have. And then the game is who can uncover the location and identity of their opponents first. And the, oh, the, wow. first, the first to be uncovered then is the losing team, and the first to uncover is the winning team. Yeah. So in order to do this, uh, John and I found a catalog uh, that was uh, leaked by Edward Snowden uh, that belonged to the NSA, where it was basically uh, all these goodies that the NSA can buy in order to hack computers and listen in on calls. And, and so we modeled a catalog that was very much like that, where we created about 17 protocols or 18 protocols that our students could buy to open up small windows into their opponent's world. And they buy these by using Bitcoins. And the Bitcoins are earned by producing artifacts based on their privacy and surveillance research. So, for example, they have a huge catalog of the artifact and the, the Bitcoin value for each artifact and they'd say, okay, if you produce a brochure on password protection, we'll pay you 18 bitcoins. If you produce a poster on CCTV cameras and, and identity theft, we'll produce, you know, we'll give you 25 bitcoins. So they would start accumulating bitcoins, at which point in the fourth phase, they would draw from their bank accounts to buy a certain protocol. One of my favorites is the street sign protocol, which forces your opponent to take a picture of a street sign which is within two kilometers or two miles of where your institution oh, is. Yes. So then you start triangulating from these little kind of breadcrumbs of information and, and, uh, and eventually trying to, to, to put it all together to figure out where your opponents are. And what's really awesome about this is, of course the students don't suspect that their opponents are in another country. They think, oh, it's another classroom in the school, or it's the school down the street? Like they think it's, you know, they're thinking local, not global. So as it starts becoming apparent that this is kind of an international situation, it really kind of it's a it's a big moment for them. They're like, wow, it's actually not in our own backyard. It's somewhere else in the world.
0: Oh, that's so good. So curious about how much you guys had to guide the students or did you plan for pitfalls or issues as they came up? I mean, there's two of you working towards the thing so you can kind of bounce ideas off each other as the game was progressing uh, was there any, I mean, if someone was trying to do this, I imagine there's points where the students kind of get stuck or they, they don't know kind of what to do next. Is, is that something that's, that happened?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think a good, uh, kind of headspace, um, <laughs> that would actually kind of reflect how we saw our role we were definitely kind of like game masters or dungeon masters where, you know, we had plans and we had expectations and and they were largely met, but there were definitely times where Paul and I had to kind of uh, improvise and kind of troubleshoot in the moment. But they were r- relatively minor, um, hmm. and and there were definitely things that we we looked at right away and were like, okay, we can fix that next time. That 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 aspect uh, of the game did not work out, and, and we'll change it. And other times, it's just like it's you know it's it's uh, moments that are true for for teaching any unit you know you you think it's going to work and then it doesn't because the, the chemistry of the group is different or uh, the, the students are different so um it's definitely one of those things where you do have to, to to think on your feet a little bit but i would just say that's that's true of any good dynamic uh teaching experience but yeah paul and i were in contact pretty much constantly throughout throughout the game uh, you know, you know, frantically text messaging each other and, and comparing <laughs> how things were, you know, uh, unfolding on either end of this, of the spectrum. But, um, that to me, that, that was a lot of fun, you know, that, that makes it exciting. And I, and I do want to go back to something that Paul said, um, that was a big thing we got in the, the, the data from the students when we got feedback, um, after both times that we ran it. Uh, and that was, they really, really liked the artifact creation phase even Mm. though that was what you would kind of like, if you had to point to like, well, what's the work that they're doing? Like that's, that's the work, you know, you know, they're, they're creating, um, you know, a a surprising number, a number of them actually chose to do kind of traditional research style papers, you know, um, because those were weighted very high. You know, if you did that, you had basically, you were almost done with your Bitcoin requirements. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, But they actually really enjoyed that. And here, here's a, an anecdote that I think kind of reflects that is because it gave them a lot of freedom and something that they don't usually really get. Um, and so the, the, uh, the students were, were beginning to work on this. I think this was probably the first or second day that they were in this phase. And I had this student and I kept looking over at him and he, he was always kind of – Looking at other uh, videos or content other than the, the topic that he had told me he was interested in, I, I can't remember what it was. You know, it was passwords or, or you know, some maybe some hacker collective. And he, and then I walked over and I was, you know, Josh, what do, what are you doing? You know, the clock is ticking. You can't waste time. <laughs> and, and and he goes like, No, I'm sorry, Mr. Fallon, but I keep I can't stop looking at these videos about Bitcoins. It's so interesting, you know, like the real world Bitcoins, like the, the cryptocurrency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, Josh, you do realize that you could just do a video about <laughs> Bitcoins, right? He's like, what? I can? Oh, 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 wow. Okay, and then he immediately then started realizing that he actually had that freedom to pursue the, the direction that he wanted to do and he ended up creating a, a very interesting uh, video about Bitcoins. Um, but yeah, so they really responded to having that, freedom that within the umbrella of cybersecurity and privacy and surveillance and, and, and technology, they could study and do whatever they want. And also in almost any form that they wanted. Um, and that was a really, um, I think valuable learning experience for them. And, and I should know for the audience, that's something that you could do even without the context of an alternate reality game, you know, giving students more choice and more freedom, I think is, is always, always a win. Absolutely.
2: Can the... Uh, I'm I'm curious about the replayability of of this specific game. Can it be, can it be done again? I guess depending on the age and and grade of the classes that you use it with at your school. I mean, I, I might be concerned about them sharing. Um, yeah. You know, the older kids that have already done it with with newer kids that haven't done it yet. But can, do you guys have enough public resources on what you did that someone else could? borrow the idea from you guys to do it has that has that work been done have you um thought about doing any of that work um i, I guess that's that's the first question and and i might i might lead into something else uh, depending on your answer here
3: so uh it's a very astute question because the there, the issue is that the win condition for the game is uncovering the opponent's school yeah so so all of a sudden once we play once uh there's an institutional memory that it's the school in Connecticut or the school in Toronto, right? And, and, the, and students talk, right? They're, 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 they're the Borg. Like there's a collective <laughs> kind of consciousness yes. going on there. Yes. So John and I knew that we were up against that. So in both of our cases, we played this with students that were either on the verge of graduating, in my case, the grade 11s, and in, John case, in John's case, the grade 9s, which were the, was the graduating year for his school. So what we would do is we staggered the play every two years, and it worked. I mean, we with the second time we ran it, there was uh, there was there was one older. Both of us had older brothers who had mm-hmm. younger brothers in our classes, but they loved the game so much that they didn't want to oh, ruin it for cool. the younger brothers and actually really preserved cool. the sanctity of the game and didn't actually transmit the information. So, um, and then to the second part of your question. Uh, you know, I, 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 I struggle a lot with our traditional notions of scale and scalability. It's kind of one of my, my you know, one of, one of the things I think about a lot because I it's certainly not a game where, you know, we share the template and, and any teacher can just pick it up and play it. This is organically grown from a lot of work and passion that John and I put into it. And, it, and a lot of it is, is hinged on our, our sensibility, our love of ARGs, um and and this thing that we crafted and it's certainly not in any easy form I and mean, we could send you all the hundreds of documents and catalogs and then you could you know kind of order that in a way that makes sense for you but it certainly would be a very different experience yeah however i do feel that of the alternate reality games that i've been involved in designing and that you know john has been involved in designing this one definitely with a little help with software and some, some, some more deliberate design elements could be scalable on a more traditional sense. Yeah. Um, because one of the faults of the game is, is that you know, John and I are invested in making it work. We want our students to have a great experience. But if I was you know, competing against another class in the States, and I was partisan to my own class, and I knew that John was in Connecticut, I could start dropping little hints like, oh, you may want to look on the eastern seaboard, or you know, whatever the case may be, so, uh, and, and in order to give my Canadian students the win condition, right, in, in the sense of competition. So I think in, if this were to be enacted on a larger scale, there would be almost a clearinghouse that would, that would pair up schools, but the schools wouldn't know. Even the teachers involved wouldn't know what oh, the other awesome. school or where the other school was. And therefore, the teacher could also be involved in the fun of trying to uncover and figure out where their opponents are. And I think awesome. that would create Very a much cool. more interesting version of the game. Uh, and, then, and then refining some of the design elements, which currently would be a little bit overwhelming or burdensome for the uninitiated teacher, to make it a little bit more fluid and easier to implement.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think... In- one, one thing that I'll, I'll add on to that is that ARGs themselves, you know, when, when Paul and I present these to other teachers and we talk about it, it, it can seem intimidating. And in some ways it is, but in some ways it's not. Um, you know, it's it's very much uh, like a, like a Lego set. You know, Paul and I created this both out of our own interests and our own logistics and our own culture of our schools. And there there's a wide scale of complexity and content that you could do with this. So if a teacher is listening to this, they are like, oh, man, this sounds like such a great learning experience, but I couldn't do that because of X, Y, and Z. You know, that's okay. What you could do is you could definitely create something smaller that does work in your classroom. And then once you kind of see an action and you have a little bit uh, of a taste of of what the experience is like, it's very easy to build from there, which is exactly what happened with Paul and I. You know, we had our own experiences with ARGs, and then we kind of you know joined forces and created this other experience. But it's definitely not the starting point. You know, if you if you see online, you know, one of those crazy thousands of pieces, custom, you know, Millennium Falcon, you know, Lego constructions, you know, you don't start there with Legos, you know, you try something right. a little bit smaller. Um, yes, so that's, uh, that's definitely the, the entry point that I would, uh, I would suggest if, if you kind of get in uh, or, or find it um, an exciting prospect for your classroom.
2: So your next project is the Duplo of ARGs.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, yeah. You very much could start there if you wanted to, for sure.
2: So so why ARGs? I mean why you, you there are tons of resources on digital citizenship, on online safety, on privacy. I mean Google did this whole like internet awesome thing. It's a whole curriculum. You could you could have taught this a million different ways. What what's the big picture of alternate reality games as far as like students go and and teaching and learning? Why Why use this? It's a lot more work than than just, you know, cribbing the Google Internet Awesome curriculum and 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 printing out worksheets. And and why this?
3: So uh, from from the work perspective, ARGs are, you know, at least the ones I've been involved in are an enormous amount of work. But it's also a labor of love. I, I love designing I love creating these experiences and I think John feels exactly the same way. So the work doesn't feel like work, it just feels like play for us because we're putting together this 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 amazing experience and we're drawing and you know from different sources and 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 really trying to create something cohesive. But but on in more practical terms as to why would you want to consider this over a more traditional lesson is First of all, it really draws from a school of experiential learning, right? And in, in the sense that, that learning these concepts in the abstract where, oh, okay, yeah, I should be a little more careful with my password or, you know, uh, I put information out into the world that, that makes me vulnerable to being found is, is kind of something you could, you know, learn in a video and write a test about and move on with your life. But But what's interesting about this game is the way the teams have lost when a team has been found out or somebody, it's all because of things that they've left on Facebook or information that's mm. available online. So it's not just the, it's a, it's a marriage of form and content where they're, they're actually seeing in a very tangible and lived way that the information that's out there actually makes them vulnerable. Right. Wow. So, yes. so, and, and the, the other element is I think it goes back to the rabbit hole that I described earlier is I walked out of the class 10 minutes after this thing started as John did and we never walked back in. So what that tells you is is that this thing runs on its own. Yeah. And and it goes back to something I heard Michelle King say at a conference a few years ago. She said I don't teach. I create the conditions where learning takes place. Wow. And I think a well-designed ARG does exactly that. I mean there's a lot of talk about not being the sage on the stage and and being the guide on the side and you know and student-centered learning. Uh, but unfortunately, the lecture-style sh- physical structures of our schools and classrooms, no matter how hard you try, really perpetuate that very teacher-centered uh, dynamic as hard as you try to struggle against it. And there's many people doing really great things that are, that are eroding at that, at that structure. But an ARG is a really highly designed immersive experience. And, and the design eliminates the, the teacher as a central role and I think that when properly done, it just creates a very dynamic, uh, very uh, self-selected learning experience for the students that really starts shifting the teacher from kind of a, a, a repository of knowledge to somebody who's a, a, an experienced instructional designer.
1: Yeah, I, there's a, a couple of great points uh, that uh, Paul made there that I'd like to, to add on to. And one is when it comes to the, the topic of cybersecurity and privacy and surveillance you know i hope this doesn't offend any listeners or maybe even previous guests of your podcast but the there's the mythos of like the digital native when it comes to our students is is completely false you know, and a lot of the times that we look at our, our students and they're Snapchatting, you know, and then they're doing all kinds of things that we look at and we don't understand at all. And we kind of give this idea that, oh, they must really know what they're doing on there. They don't. They're absolutely clueless. They have a few really specific skills that they know well because they've grown up with them. But as far as big picture stuff, you know, they're as clueless as anybody else, but they are far more exposed. So we definitely felt an onus to, to really make sure that they had a bit more awareness and Paul's exactly right. You know, it's one thing to be told that your privacy is very fragile and that a group of strangers could find you anywhere in the world with a few breadcrumbs of information. It's another to really experience it. Um, and, and in both cases of the times that we ran the game, all the teams were always found out. They were, you know, it was just a matter of who was able to expose the other team first. Um, and in both cases, they found out the, the location of the other team with two pieces of innocuous information. And in one case, it was uh, a street sign and uh, a Google picture of, of their campus. And they were able Taken to... Taken by
3: a drone. A drone yeah. picture of the yeah. campus. Well, yeah, yeah
1: a, a fictional drone. It was just like a Google street map, you know, a screenshot. Um, and in our case, it was a name of a student And, you know, like the colors of their of their school, you know, so these are these are things that they are broadcasting all the time about themselves, every time they pick up their phone, every time they open up their laptop. And for them to have like a metaphorical experience of that vulnerability uh, was way more impactful than just being told, hey, be careful online, kids, you know, you know, you're always being spied upon. Uh, And I think that's a real game changer pun intended of the Mm -hmm. um you know ability of an ARG when you can live that experience as opposed to just being told it that's far more powerful so if someone if our audience members
0: are interested in learning more about alternate reality games or just connecting with both of you guys can you guys give us some of your information your uh, twitter and then maybe websites that they can go to that you you guys both have a website
3: so I'm at uh, at Paul Darvazi, P-A-U-L-D-A-R-V-A-S-I for my Twitter account. Uh, it, my Gmail address is my name at gmail.com, and I have a site called ludiclearning.org, L-U-D-I-C, learning.org, uh, where I've I've written about alternate reality games in general, other teachers that are running them. And I've started blogging about my alternate reality game, but my dissertation work derailed me Mm. sometime in 2017. But I I have uh, (laughs) every intention of continuing with uh, writing about the ward game. And and John also has an excellent site that he's going to tell you about.
1: Sure, yeah. If you want to find me on Twitter, um, at John C. Fallon, that's J-O-H-N-C as in Christopher F a l l o n like jimmy fallon um, and you could also find me uh at my website which is thealternateclassroom.org and I've got um, a kind of a design diary series of posts that, that are definitely designed for a teacher who is new to ARGs and is curious about it, um, where it's actually about my first one with the Odyssey, which is much smaller scale. So it, it runs, uh, runs you through how I came up with the idea, why I wanted to do it, and as well the creation of several of the puzzles and experiences in it. So you can see that, um, you know, kind of how that comes together. Um, And it's definitely not as intimidating um, as it might sound. Amazing. Paul
2: Darvazi and John Fallon, thanks so much for joining us, guys. Thank you very, very much. No, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to On Education. My name is
0: Glenn Irvin. My co-host is Mike Washburn. On Education is part of the Education Podcast Network. You can listen to this show and many others by great educators like Jennifer Gonzalez, Matt Miller, and many more by visiting edupodcastnetwork.com. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at oneducationpodcast.com. You can tweet us at oneducationpod. Mike is at Mr. Washburn on Twitter, and I can be found at Irv Spanish. You can find us on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash we're also on Instagram at oneducationpod. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Classcraft, for supporting us. Check out classcraft.com oneducation to learn more about them. Thanks as always for listening. Stay awesome and see you soon.